Welcome to GW's Central Asia Program podcast series. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever in the world you are. I'm honored to open this book event developed, uh, devoted to uh, Central Peripheries by Dr. Malen Laruel here in the Elliott School of International Affairs. I'm Peter Holberg, Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs and Research Initiatives in the Elliott School. And this event is part of the celebration of 30 years of independence of Central Asia. But allow me first to say a few words about the Institute that hosts our Central Asia program. And there's a reason for that. Uh, the Institute for European Russian Eurasian Studies, IRIES, uh, because both the Central Asia program and IRIES are directed by Marlene Laurel, the author of the book that we are launching today. And our institute also hosted two of our three discussions as research fellows um, in the past few years. Uh, I wanna say just about the situation in which we are now, the last year and a half were a trying period for our school and thus for the Central Asia program and for IRIES as well, reflecting the tumultuous conditions under which institutions of higher learning had to operate throughout the world. The beginning of the health crisis resulted in a hiring freeze and in deep budgetary restrictions bringing most operations to a sudden halt. Paradoxically, researchers reacted to the year-long lockdown, uh, not with depression, uh, but with heightened activities, increasing the number of grant application in our school alone by 60%. And that includes also the scholars in IRIES, including Malin Laurel, who actually applied for a large number of grants and won also uh, an amazing number of grants in this difficult period. In all of this, the research institutes played the role of a vanguard and IRIES with its Central Asia program as its integral part is exemplary in these countless initiatives. One of the former IRIES directors, Jim Millar, was distrustful of the longevity of institutes. He used to say, institutes come and go, departments are forever. Well, in my 30 years at UW, I've seen departments disappear yet IRIES is still there celebrating its 60th anniversary this year. As a matter of fact, IRIES is the only institute in the Elliott School that has been ranked by McGann as a leader among university affiliated regional study institutes beginning in 2017 with rank six in the world and moving up last year to number five, higher than any of its peers in the United States. There can be no doubt that the Central Asia program with its numerous colloquia and publications is a major contributor to this success. In its 10 year history at George Washington University, the Central Asia program has become a hub of intellectual production and a genuine partner for scholars in the Central Asia republics. The book Central Peripheries published by UCL Press offers new perspective, perspectives on the complexities of nation building in Central Asia's post-Soviet republics its author, Malan Laurel, is one of the world's leading experts on Central Asia. Although the range of her expertise includes other fields as well, her books, for example, the recently published Is Russia Fascist, are distinguished by innovative approaches, objectivity, and independence of view. Thus, they trigger fruitful debates that transcend the convenient cliches that are common in mass media and that are typically a characteristic of academia. Our three discussants exemplify the internationalization, one might even say globalization of scholarship in Central Asia in an impressive manner. Diana Kuderbegenova is a lecturer in the Department of Sociology at the University of Cambridge. 
Sabina Insibayeva is assistant professor in the Graduate School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Tsukuba in Japan. And Berik Boldukiev is a PhD candidate in, a candidate in political science and international relations at the Center for Arab and Islamic Studies at the Australian National University. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to our guests. I now give the floor to Marlene Laurel. Thank you so much, Peter, for your kind introduction. What I would like to do here is very briefly over like a few minutes, give you a, a, a brief summary or a, a, a brief yes, summary of the approaches that I was trying to develop in, in the book. In fact, it's a compilation of articles that I've been publishing all over the last two decades. And I've tried to kind of update and tie them uh, uh, together. And they are really the result of, so this kind of 20, 25 years of studying Central Asia and following the evolution of the region, but also of my interest in uh, nationalism studies and everything related to ideological construction. And there are two key elements that have drove my, my interest for nationhood in, in Central Asia. The first one is that I see a limitation in the way we have been studying authoritarianism in Central Asia, because we usually miss the part of consensus that is needed for citizens to accept and function in a resilient manner with an authoritarian regime. And I think this resilience and acceptance and consensus is very much possible because the Central Asian state have been able to produce and to perform the nation and its symbolic attributes in ways that was speaking uh, uh, to a large segment of the population. And that kind of consolidated the kind of co-creational relationship between the state and the, the citizens around the symbolic definition of the nation. And so I see this book also as a contribution to regime studies by saying like, Let's also look at nationhood as a critical element of the symbolic politics that make regimes possible in, in a, uh, especially, I mean, authoritarian regimes possible. The second element is that I was really intrigued by what seems to be a, an, a paradox of having on one side, a Central Asia as being highly globalized. I mean, Central Asian elites are globalized. Flows of money and trade are globalized. Societies, everyday citizens are living in very transnational spaces. So we have this globalized aspect. <clears throat> and at the same time, the region is still holding a very old fashioned vision of what should be the nation state and what are the symbolic attributes of the nation state. And I think that's, that has a really interesting paradox. And some have been bringing that notion of post postmodernism, that is a kind of new wave of refusal of postmodern relativism and Western produced narrative about the death of the, the nation. And on the contrary, and I think that's what the Central Asian state have been uh, doing, rehabilitating nationhood and nationalism as a path to universalism. It's through your nation state that you integrate the international community. It's through your symbolic kind of national attributes that you create your voice in the world, that you speak to your international community, that you get recognized, that you get a brand. So it's a very 19th century German romanticism inspired uh, uh, definition of the nation as a path to universalism. And I think Central Asia is a good example that encapsulates this combination of being globalized and postmodern in many eclectic aspects, but also very traditional 
in the, the value portfolio that is brought together. And I think that explains very much why the region was feeling or is still feeling quite at ease with illiberal movement and leaders that are uh, arriving in the West because illiberal movements are insisting on recreating political, social and cultural boundaries and sometimes concrete borders, but also cultural boundaries. And I think that's something that in Central Asia is received quite well because as I was saying, nationalism is seen as a tool for gaining agency. And so it's normal to have borders to have an in-group and an out-group and to have a, a, a quite well-defined boundaries of who is in, who is out. So that's what the kind of two broad uh, element that uh, uh, pushed me to put all these articles together and try to reflect on these nationhood processes. Uh, the book itself uh, uh, really focuses on much more concrete nationhood trajectories and what I call the national biography. And so I looked at four of the five Central Asian countries. I'm not looking at Turkmenistan because it was, of course, it's too difficult to do research and to bring something new to what has already been written. And I really focus mostly on, on Kazakhstan, but I also have chapters on Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan, looking at the different aspects of the rewriting of history. How do you discuss ethnic continuity? How do you discuss globally historical continuity, which period of history do you want to celebrate? Which one do you want to obscure? How do you deal with your territorial unity? How do you deal with the Soviet past and what is rooted in the Soviet past and what you want to reconstruct? And of course, one of the big unsaid in all these uh, uh, national uh, uh, biographies is the relationship to Islam, which I think is a key element that we <laughs> should more often say that it's the big absent of this kind of national official uh, 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 history. So what I was interesting is really looking at this ambivalence of nationhood as a, so defining the new cultural normality or normalcy for the post-Soviet period. It's, an, it's a mismaking process to create what will be what would make sense for everyday citizens, right? For kind of the, the commonsensical process. And at the same time, nationhood or nationalism is a technology of power. So it's a way to develop non-democratic, non-representative mechanism where the society can still feel that they have something to say or to incorporate. So I was interested in that uh, uh, nationhood being both normative co-creational, but it can also be repressive depending on, of course, the countries. You look at the period and the, the, the lens you want to, to look at. What I think, and I will be uh, slowly moving toward the, the conclusion, what I think was is really important is that we have been looking at the region too much through a very normative Western-centric lenses, looking at and seeing Central Asian state as very static, stagnant, immobile, and I think, in fact, when you look at the nationhood process, you see them as very inventive, creative, really playing with a lot of different tools to try to create something that would make sense, right, to the population. And it's not only about text, it's about architecture, it's about museology, it's about visual, it's about pop culture. And so in the conclusion, I tried to show these new venues for research. And in fact, there are a lot of great research produced now. It's really a, a blossoming uh, uh, filled with a lot of new scholars looking at that on all the non-textual form of writing national history. And it could be 
memory, oral history, popular history, television, uh, uh, art, street art, music. And so I think it's really interesting in that what I'm, on what I'm concluding in the book is that for three years, for three decades, the Central Asian production of nationhood was quite centralized by the state and kind of classic institutions. And what we see emerging this last decade is really a more plural rewriting of history, a less consensual, a less state-centric. And so we can see tension emerging in the way different groups are trying to produce a narrative about the nation. And so they are more of this co-creational mechanism arriving now. And I think that's a sign that plurality is on its way in Central Asia, ideological plurality in reinterpreting the past and deciding what is meaningful for the nation is on its way in Central Asia. So maybe it's not necessarily there politically, well, it can be in Kyrgyzstan, but not necessarily in the other. But I think in the, the field of nationhood narratives, we see a large plurality uh, uh, emerging as, as part of the, the change of, of a generation. And so that was the, the, the kind of concluding aspect of the, of the concluding argument of, of the book. I will stop here and I'm really looking forward to, to our uh, discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Marlene. Uh, I will now uh, give the floor to Diana Kudabergenova. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you for, for this discussion. I, um, I think Marlene gave a fantastic overview of this uh, amazing book, so I'm going to focus on three things. I'm going to talk about the structure of the book and what uh, potentially students can take away from it and, and why they should you know, considered reading this book, especially because it's open access, but also maybe you can get it because it's uh, very nice, um, you know, in, in tangible um, format as well. And secondly, I want to talk about uh, the type of contribution that may be connected to the, to the way, uh, to Marlene's overall work and how much she has inspired this field of post-Soviet uh, nationalism in Central Asia, but also in Russia. And I actually want to specify, and in the second point, I want to talk about the title of the book, which I found very intriguing, um, a little bit shocking at the time, but also, I see why, why Marlene decided to do this title, in my opinion, in challenging us and breaking these boundaries of knowledge uh, hierarchies that exist currently and in which we all, whether disciplinary or non-disciplinary, are engaged in. And I want to talk about that aspect secondly. And third, I will just you know, try to conclude, on, especially on, on the things that Marlene is proposing to do in conclusion. Which are very inspiring. I think um, you know, um, having the, the anniversary of independence, having the anniversary of the collapse of Soviet Union this year, of course, we, we, we consider history differently for, for the West. It's the 1989 and the fall of the Berlin War. Uh, well, sorry, for us in, in the region and actually in what used to be Soviet Union, it's the 1991. And um, for me, I'm coming from Kazakhstan, it's the 16th December of 1991, which is also uh, the final date of the collapse of Soviet Union, but also the Independence Day of, of my nation. So in many ways, I don't think there, there could have been like a better book to mark this, this 30 years of, of independence, 30 years of grand history in the making than the book by Marlene Laruel. And I think she's being very modest by, by calling it, you know, a compilation of her articles. I think looking at this book, even if you look at the, um, you know, kind of like um, the um, contents of the book, you can see how structurally well 
uh, it's constructed and it gives you so much to explore. And this is like my first point for the students who should uh, definitely use this book for, for the exploration. Uh, why? Because the question, uh, because the book poses very difficult, but also very useful questions in thinking about nation, nationalism and nation building. I think we all are constantly reminded of how and why uh, in the post-Soviet space, not only in Central Asia, nationalism became the dominant ideology and how it became the dominant uh, signifier of social reality. What I think Marlene is doing is allowing us not only to, I mean, she's allowing us to look beyond that uh, domination and look into why and how this happens. So I think it's a very, very important uh, point for especially those who are just starting their research to look into that. Even if you know, you're know working on a specific country that may not be covered in one of the chapters, you should look at it because the book in the first part is constructed in such a way that it compares Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan, and also uh, focuses on, on, on the specific aspect of Tengrism, which I think should be in dialogue with each other when we're approaching our work. And um, you know, even if you work, in, for example, in Tajikistan, I think as a scholar, you need to look into diverse literature outside Tajikistan, specifically in the region, to be able to compare and look and, and find the ways of how it's similar or different. So in that way, I think uh, this book is absolutely fantastic to provide the space for dialogue and contestation that we can tease certain conceptual arguments from. Um, and I'll come back about the second part of the book in, in my second point, but also what I think the students are going to be very, and, and anybody who's interested in, in, in doing this study would be absolutely benefiting from, is the way how Marlene has a specific talent, in my opinion, I've read a lot of her works, of how she can converge and combine very theoretical concepts, very novel concepts as well, with the absolutely rich and abundant empirical data and I think it's it's it is a talent because you know with the separations and further coloniality of knowledge when some of us are called the area study scholars just because we're doing our fieldwork in the so-called global south and then being the general universal knowledge producers just because you're doing your fieldwork in the global north uh, you know in these conditions and, and then with the, with the disciplinarity that is consistently pushing us uh, with our, like, you know, with indexes, with hirsches, with, uh, with impact factors and where you're publishing your work. I think it's a very sort of persisting and consistent terrain where um, one has to find their own ways of survival. So what Marlene is doing, actually, she's going against this by um, writing the book that is very much vested in super rich empirical context, but then providing very, very much a developed and you know kind of like eloquent, but also beautifully done uh, theoretical contributions. So I think this is what I myself even need to learn a lot from, from this book particularly, to be able to tease out this, these concepts and to kind of be able to also um, argue the case that just because it is from Central Asia that is considered a global periphery, it doesn't mean that it's not relevant to a particular literature, be it or nationalism, nation building or authoritarianism. So I really applaud um, to Marlene on that point. Let me come back to part two, which I promised I would do, and it's about uh, politics in Nazarbayev order. And some people might think, you know, why, why is this like that? And actually I was thinking about it as well because of course, we know that in Soviet period, it was Central Asia and Kazakhstan. But I think what this book is, is beautifully doing, it's kind of reflecting on what Soviet past used to be and how it has influenced through its legacies, institutions, meanings, symbols, even historiography, how nation building was developed um, in, the, in the first part of its independence, or what I call post-independence. But it also asks us to kind of like, you know, question that reality in many ways and contest what is Sovietness nowadays in Central Asia and in general in the region. Because I think in order to understand all these debates about what's post-colonial and post-Soviet, what's Sovietness in post-Soviet and so on, we really need to look into Caucasus in Central Asia and maybe certain parts of Russia that are not very central in order to understand, because 
when you look in so-called peripheries, that's when this kind of like domination hegemony and power really um, is kind of elucidated. And that's where we need to really look um, sort of methodologically and be innovative in, in those comparisons. So that's, I think, is, is absolutely fantastic. But the fact that Kazakhstan is included is, is a big chunk and second part of this book is also kind of doing justice to the fact that um, despite of the fact that I am from Kazakhstan and, and let's forget it for a moment, uh, I think this particular country and this context has provided so much richness to our understanding of what is the, what can be the new uh, theory or conceptualization of nation building or nationalism studies as well, that it's absolutely understandable because of the minority issues, because of the linguistic issues that Marlene is so beautifully uh, unwrapping uh, in their complexity, despite of them being like, you know, constantly entangled and disentangled on all the social reality. I think that's what's beautiful. And also looking at how the state or regime is using it and how people respond to that role. So it's contestation is absolutely beautiful. But my point on, on, on Kazakhstan here is also that, um, and that's what a, what a second point of compliment or applauding that I wanted to do to Marlene is how you are able to take um, the specific case and make it exemplary uh, to the, as, a, as an example of contribution to nationalism studies, and which I hope we all need to pick up and continue building on your shoulders, building on your foundation to do that. Because nationalism studies, in, in many ways, they also need to be decolonized in a way, because they do build, as again, in the universalism, they build on the Western experience, they build on the Westphalian European nation state. But what your book is showing that there are there are alternatives to that. There are alternatives both temporal in terms of temporal perspective, but also spatial. And that's why we. Uh, scholars of nationalism actually need to look into Kazakhstan to tease out all these new series and concepts or rethinking the, the, the old concepts that exist. Um, some concepts that I'm really allergic to, like, for example, civicness or civic nationalism. If there is such a concept of civic nationalism, I should have put it here in the, in the public. And my third point, uh, as I promised, and I think I'm already speaking for too long, uh, but my third point is about the title. It's called Central Peripheries. And I think it's also a very challenging perspective to us, but in many, many positive ways, to think about where are Central Asian studies why are they considered as global peripheries, despite of all the things, as Martin said, that, you know, Central Asia is being connected to global knowledge production, Central Asia is connected to uh, financial flows. It is literally geographically in the center of all sorts of maps we're looking at. It's in the center, in the heart of Eurasia. It used to be the center of the Silk Roads and all the infrastructures and connections, but due to the uh, post-Cold War, you know, divisions of the world, it all of a sudden became the periphery of the periphery because of all these kind of like dominant discourses that then create this hierarchy of knowledge, but also hierarchy in geopolitics. And I think that's something Again, I'm speaking from the sociological point of view. Uh, I know that uh, IR scholars and everybody else would have a different perspective, and I love, would love to learn it from them. But I think Marlene's book, in a very nice way, opens up that debate even further. So it's beyond just what we know. It's beyond the post-colonial. It's beyond the post-Soviet. But it's more about you know teasing out these power relations and thinking why and how we can make this field as dominant as it should be. Because empirically, she proves to us, and also conceptually, that it is providing so much richness and so much contribution, but somehow it remains on the periphery of certain discussions and certain knowledges. Well, hopefully not anymore because, because you, you've done so much, you've contributed. Uh, but it's also a question for, for, for the scholars who are you know, currently in Central Asia doing their fieldwork or writing. Why is this like that? Why, um, why, why is our positionality considered secondary or peripheral? And, and I think it's in our hands to change it. I think I had one more point, which, uh, yeah, the point about well, the new studies that Marlene is proposing, absolutely. I think there should be a lot more focus um, specifically on what and how people feel these changes. I absolutely agree with the memory studies. And thankfully, as you said, there is a breadth of 
new scholarship coming out and we have fantastic uh, studies on you know people doing um, memory sort of self ethnographies auto ethnographies they call of the post-soviet uh, perspectives but also generational change which is very very important and how these things are are changing so in many ways as i said this book is uh, fundamental um as a as a kind of, you know, marking the 30 years of independence, marking what happened in 30 years of uh, post-Soviet, uh, and how are we going to talk about post-Soviet in the next 30 years is also a question that is left um, you know, inscribed in this book in many ways. But also I think it's um, absolutely fantastic because it provides such a complex, I, I should use better, better language, but uh, such a diverse and all-encompassing perspective on the region that um, you know, I think it's a must read for anybody who wants to understand how and why it works um, you know, in the post-Soviet, but also contemporary perspective. And I should stop here because I've been talking for too much. Thank you. Thank you, Diana, for this great assessment of Marlene's book. Uh, and I now turn the floor to Sabina in Sibaiba. Um, yeah, I guess good morning to everyone and good night to those who are in Asia. Um, I'm really happy to see uh, familiar faces and thank you so much to Peter, to Janet and Caitlin for um, organizing this, this. And um, it is a great pleasure to be able to participate in this event, um, especially because we celebrate uh, Marlene's book, uh, whom I consider to be one of the leading scholars in the field today. And speaking of the book, um, I think that it is a truly marvelous book and it's not just like a backhanded compliment. And in the next few minutes, I will give a um, few reasons why I think so. And then I will raise um, a few quibbles just um, in the spirit of this occasion. And I will just ask a couple of questions. So uh, firstly, uh, Marlene's study shows us how um, it is possible to draw many um, interesting insights um, from comparisons, uh, but at the same time um, reminds us that single, single case study analysis um, has a great deal to offer and uh, bring out peculiarities that are often omitted in um, larger studies. And speaking of other studies, I can't help but mention uh, Diana's book that was published earlier this year. And um, while Marlene and Diana's book share a focus on post-Soviet states, um, they actually show little overlap in their approaches and organizing concepts. Um, this is partially due to the fact that Diana being a sociologist and Marlene trained in political philosophy. So these books enrich the debate on nation building from their distinct um, yet complementary vintage points. Um, second, Merlin's uh, book stands out for covering both Soviet and post-Soviet periods, emphasizing that each state's um, post-Soviet uh, nationhood is deeply rooted in Soviet past. So the book offers a broad overview um, of state-sponsored nation-building narratives um, in the Central Asian region and demonstrating how nation-building in these states evolved along completely divergent paths. And I think uh, Marlene did a great job um, at synthesizing uh, so much material and dealing with so many controversial issues and put them um, into a broader context. And thirdly, I personally really enjoyed reading about the process of writing and rewriting the biography of each nation. And in particular, Mar Marlene skillfully turned 
our attention away from the names we all know uh, very well and focus on less known ideologists and writers that actually um, help to shape this grand narratives. And um, I, I came from the book um, deeply impressed with the detailed research where there is literally uh, no unimportant information. Um, overall, the, the book is a page turner and as Diana mentioned, it is available online and it's not paywalled. So this is a wonderful news for scholars and general audience. And I just want to end with some um, possibilities or suggestions about where this research might go, ne go next. And I think that in the book, as Merlin mentioned, um, there is not insufficient uh, discussion about consumers of this grand na narratives. Um, the, general population. So for instance, in Uzbekistan, even though the ruling elite controlled the historical narrative um, that was eventually rewritten, uh, many studies demonstrate that general population felt nostalgic about Soviet times. So, but of course, uh, one cannot be expected to do everything in one book. Um, secondly, while discussing Kazakh, Kazakh case, uh, you mentioned that uh, transnational paradigm that aims um, quote demonstrate a path of development that can be adopted by other countries and targeted broader internationalized audience as well as um, domestic ones so can you please clarify what that means for a regular person in kazakhstan for instance um, if we are to scale down and personify these paradigms we can see two individuals, one of whom will identify with Kazakhness and the other one with um, Kazakhstanese identity. So the first one being someone who um, was raised in Kazakh dominant context and has developed ethnicity-based set of uh, attachments and the other one exposed to more um, inclusive informational and cultural environments. So what about th this third paradigm? Uh, who is this person? person, to whom, to what extent, and to whom this paradigm was developed. So to what extent does this um, transnationalism resonate with the general population for whom um, 2030 and 2050 and so on, they actually um, are abstract concepts. Um, my second question is like, while the first two paradigms are self-sustaining. So I have an impression that these two paradigms are self-sustaining, relying mostly on internal dynamics for their own survival. Um, the third one actually requires an external other. So in a sense, um, this narrative was constructed as a way to, uh, to get a validation and recognition uh, of our Kazakh importance or on the... Uh, international speech in relation to other states. So for example, we're Eurasians, we're proud that 140 nationalities happily live in Kazakhstan and so on. But how important and how resonating is this um, outward looking narrative for their self-identification for um, regular citizens? And my third question um, concerns um, uh, the hierarchy of um, ethnic identities. So. Um, it's not a secret that Kazakhstan nowadays is experiencing retraditionalization and Islamization. So to what extent this, um, the hierarchy of ethnic identities that you mentioned uh, might change in the future? 
So these are my three main questions. I will stop it here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sabina. I think there will be some time after Vedic Bol's contribution to actually address these questions from the three discussants, and then we, we move on and open the floor for um, all attendants here. So, okay, maybe Marlene, maybe you can actually react to Sabina's yeah. questions and to some aspects that uh, Diana brought up because yes. they, they are, uh, they, they go even beyond the subject of the book in regards to scholarship, for example, right? Why scholarship on Central Asia um, sometimes marginalized, why and so on, so on. So these I think are, are really um, fundamental questions. So yeah, they were, thank you so much for all your, your great uh, comments. I have several, yeah, of course it's making me kind of uh, 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 thinking at, um, on the, the kind of post-colonial aspect of uh, uh, Central Asian uh, research, which I think is becoming really the very kind of hot <laughs> topic in the field uh, uh, globally in terms of knowledge production, but in terms also of this balance of, of, you know, professional realities between those studying Central Asia not living there and those who are based uh, uh, in the region. I think what is it, what I like in the kind of post-colonial framing is that it allows Central Asia to kind of connect with the global South, right? That suddenly you could imagine that you would have studies comparing I don't know, something happening in Central Asia during Soviet time with something happening in, in French-speaking Africa uh, 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 at the same time. And that I think would be something really new for the region because my impression is that for very long, the region was so much thinking of itself and being thought of as kind of linked to the Russian world or therefore or to the Middle East that we kind of lost this possibility of connecting with the, 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 the global South. And I think that will bring a lot. At the same time, I think the risk of the, the kind of too much of this post-colonial framework is that if we push too much the kind of victimization aspect of, of the narrative, first we are kind of taking away the agency that Central Asians had in Soviet time. And I think it's really important and it's it functions for the whole global South, right? To, to realize how much Soviet modernity could be attractive. Right, people could be very much navigating a complex world where they knew they were forbidden to speak on some topics. They could be deprived of their access to their national languages, some element of their memory. But for a large part of the society, this kind of three drive toward modernization was also very attractive professionally, uh, uh, economically. And I think it's important to find the right nuance and to bring that into the discussion. Otherwise, you make you, you take away the, the agency of individuals and nation, and you also kind of backwardize, uh, if I may say nation, by thinking that modernity is not attractive and cannot be genuine, right? And I think that's the whole point, that modernity shouldn't be only seen as something coming from the West. It's modernity that makes sense for nations in the global South. So I think there, there is a lot of reflection. And I think the fields on the global south more globally is much more developed on that discussion and all the nuances that what we have so far for Central Asia, which are still kind of where it just kind of, the topics is just been arriving these last few years and it still need to be kind of uh, 
uh, elaborated and brought with, with uh, nuances. And of course, it's complicated. It's a different political context. You have Russia kind of retaking control of its own narrative. So you that also create kind of a, a reaction on the, on the side of some segment of the Central Asian societies who want to be sure they can keep their dissociation from Russia. But I think the point is that you can be dissociated from Russia and say no to a lot of things coming from your Russian and Soviet past and still embrace some element that Soviet modernity gave you and that you think are making sense for your own nation. So I think that's really where the Central Asian scholarship and societies globally will have to work really on the kind of ten narrow path to find the, the right uh, uh, balance. Sabina, on your comments, I mean, yeah, I think as always in studies on nationhood, the consumer side is always the most difficult, right? The majority of students are always on the producing side because it's easier to study what is centralized than to study how people read uh, uh, things, right? So I think it's also slowly changing. I mean, it, it's slow to change in Central Asia because it's difficult to get to do uh, surveys in several of these countries. It's difficult to really be kind of, you know, attending classroom, for example, and, and seeing uh, how a teacher will divert from what is written in the textbook and say something else. So all these kind of nuanced elements, they are difficult uh, uh, to capture. But yeah, I think the consumer side is absolutely critical and we should bring that back in the, in the picture. And as you were saying, uh, uh, the consumer side has been much more probably nostalgic of uh, uh, some element of Soviet experience that what the official narrative has been trying to, to develop. And then probably the relationship to Islam and the presence of Islam in many everyday life is also not reflected at all in the state-produced narrative. So I think that's the two key elements where you have a gap between the state narratives and what is the everyday life of, of favorite citizens. And I think with what I was saying at the end, this kind of uh, evolution where now state production have on one way or another to take more into account the plurality of voices that are emerging will slowly uh, uh, help uh, uh, rebalance uh, uh, that. Very briefly on your transnationalism question. Well, I think it was, as you said, it's a narrative that is done for export and for speaking to an external order, right? So it's this idea that you will get recognition at home by getting recognition abroad. And I think that has been one of the big strategy of the, the, the of Kazakhstan and especially this, the last decades of Nazarbayev rule while really very much kind of inscribing Kazakhstan in the international community and having the reflection of that recognition as the way to legitimize the, the regime at home. But I think it's also a narrative that speak to the elites, that speak to the new generation of technocrats and that's a way to say, okay, whatever, either you are more kind of toward Kazakhness or you are more toward Kazakhstanness, whatever, in any case, we are this kind of modernizing country that is showing the past. And that is a kind of model of development the same way like South Korea or Singapore or Dubai could be. And whatever you think about our own internal tensions about what is ethnic, what is civic, we all share this kind of, you know, forward-looking way that make Kazakhstan uh, uh, comparable potentially with other uh, uh, not great power, but regional power that try to kind of showcase their, their, their path of development. So I think that was the way it was thought by the, the Kazakh government. And I think it worked pretty well in some 
technocratic groups for whom that kind of reflection from, from legitimacy abroad was making sense. And last point with traditionalization, Islamization, as I was saying in the book and in the presentation, yeah, I think that the key issue that the narrative will have to be more nuanced on the, the legitimacy of secular institution, because that will be, at least in some of the Central Asian countries, getting get progressively challenged. And so they will be the, they will have to find a way to reintegrate Islam into the set narrative uh, uh, more visibly, and to find the balance between trying to be globalized and modernized economically and in terms of in visibility on the international scene and the society that is indeed uh, uh, turned toward more conservative values. But I think that's paradox is not specific to Central Asia. It's a paradox that we have in many countries in the world. Right, where we have to deal with this wave of conservative or liberal values. And that has to find a way to be articulating with still goals of kind of progress and integration, whatever we, we mean by that. I will stop here and I hope Beric, Beric Ball will be able to, to speak okay. now. Thank you so much, Malen. And Beric Ball is joining us through his iPhone. So maybe this is gonna work. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me now? Hi. Okay, terrific. Yes, excellent. I'm so sorry. There is, I don't know what's happened with my uh, laptop. There is some technical issues. Uh, so, uh, hello, everyone, and uh, hello from Canberra, and uh, good evening, good morning to everyone. I'd like to uh, congratulate Marlene with such a wonderful and fascinating book about uh, nationhoods on Central Asia. And I believe that even so, I read some uh, her articles before on Kazakhstan and I'm using in my current research, I'm finding that she updated and added so much enriched data on that. So I believe it would be useful for everyone. And as, the, uh, as uh, Diana and Sabina have mentioned, that's, um, that book is uh, in open access. So it will be wonderful that everyone, especially who are in Central Asia would have access to book and I have, no, I have been happy noticing that it was like almost um, more than 1,000 uh, downloads of the book, especially people from Kazakhstan. And uh, that's really good. And uh, it it's adds a lot of benefit to the scholarship. And uh, I'd like to uh, focus on the some maybe one, two main points on the books that I maybe had a takeaway from the book. And uh, maybe that uh, will be more on the broader implications of this book. Uh, so uh, my first point is related to this theoretical uh, um, contribution of the book regarding the post-postmodernism uh, and uh, and how this kind of hybridity or fluidity of the nation building, especially in Kazakhstan, is um, played out in the last thirty years. And I was wondering uh, if you if you try to look to this hybridity and fluidity. Is it mean that uh, there is a, some kind of impression that this hybridity and uh, fluidity is broadening the gap between the uh, different types of societal dimensions? For instance, in Kazakhstan, maybe as as it goes to the language issue between the Kazakh and the Russian, or the ethnic minority, ethnic majority issue, and also regarding the Islam uh, and the um, power elites in Kazakhstan who try to marginal some of the power elites who tries to marginalize this uh, Islam from the as a main discourse in the nation building. Does it mean that this kind of um, this uniting of this gap or the increasing of this gap is kind of um, 
creating some kind of um, dichotomy and it's kind of creating more uh, more um, uh, more of a discrepancy in the nation building of Kazakhstan and it has some kind of more uh, it, in the long run it would be more tangential uh, within the Kazakhstani society and uh, my second main takeaway is related to the uh, further research and that's related to the uh, even so the nation building is uh, on Central Asia is widely researched Marlene provided us more uh, different arenas of the research uh, especially starting from the uh, history textbooks, how it's interpreted and how it's percepted by the school teachers and my research is focused on that and further uh, going on that to the memory studies and how the families would uh, would perceive different traumatic events for instance of, uh, of the 20th century as the Soviet past and uh, also the Islam as one of the areas and uh, going more further into the museums, monuments and all of that and uh, um, goes to the uh, idea of the that the nation building is moves towards the less state-centric as Marlene argued and concluded and uh, um, and more dynamic more more vivid more vibrant area because of the including and the changing from the hegemonic discourses towards the, uh, this bottom-up approaches and uh, I believe that that's a fascinating and interesting area, which is goes towards the perception of the and the actual consumers, as Marla mentioned. And uh, uh, my research shows that, and it's uh, actually uh, actually confirms Marlene's uh, um, uh, ideas and hypothesis in the conclusion. And it, it's it's actually becoming uh, more. Uh, it's actually becoming less state-centric. And uh, I believe that uh, would be a great area of looking at and examining in the future and uh, uh, building on Marlene's research and continuing to do, develop even more further. And uh, that would be, I believe, uh, further work for the young researchers as me to, to work and build on that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Beric Bol. Marlene, do you want to answer right away? Yeah, maybe, maybe I can answer Beric Bol, and then we will. Okay, the and, and let me just say, just to to our to our other guests. So, uh, please uh, send your questions through the chat. You can send them to me. You can send them directly to Marlene, uh, whatever you prefer, and then we will discuss these questions uh, when the floor is open to Q and A. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Beric uh, Bol. On the fluidity issue, I really like that notion and i think that many countries in the region are really showing a lot of ideological fluidities more than we want to recognize and maybe russia is leading <laughs> in terms of creating a, a, a ideological fluidity but i think kazakhstan has been also able uh, to do so with, which also show the the kind of ad hoc capacity of adaptation of these uh, uh, regimes to the evolution of both the domestic and the, the international or regional uh, uh, context. So way kind of to always negotiate the way you will frame uh, uh, things. At the same time, I don't want to see that as a specificity of the region. I think that in fact, every nation building or kind of citizen citizenship citizenry contract is always in tension and in flux and in negotiation 
And I think what we are seeing now in the West, all this uh, uh, illiberal movement that I'm also studying, I think are also telling us that they want regularly each nation, even in the so-called developed, well-established uh, uh, democratic world, you need to renegotiate what is the nation, who is in, who is out, what are the criteria for being part of. That is a normal process just because the world is changing fast. And so what makes us live together and identify as one nation needs to evolve regularly. And I think there is a call now, even in the West, for kind of opening, rediscussing what are the boundaries and, and, and uh, of, of the nation. But of course, the post-Soviet space is showing that in a very kind of, uh, <laughs> under a very bright uh, uh, light. What you said about this kind of growing discrepancy between social groups, depending on, on because of the way the, the, the nationhood is, is developed. I think so. I think in fact for I think also the nationhood narrative, especially in Kazakhstan, is very much a micro-targeted uh, uh, mechanisms, right? That's speaking to different audience. So you have different narratives targeting different audiences and saying not exactly the same things or saying the same things, but with a lot of nuances so everybody can find something that resonates with what they need. Where I think there have been the, the growing gap has been, of course, for Kazakhstan around the, the kind of Kazakh speaking aspect of the nationhood at the same time, I think there are a growing number of ideological products developed by state institution to speak to Kazakh speaking population. It's just that we tend not to see that as uh, foreigners because very few of us look at the, 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 what is produced in national languages. And that was my case. I could really look only on what was produced in Russian. So even if I knew there was an entire world in things produced in national languages, it's more difficult to have them uh, uh, studied. I think the key element that is also missing, as I was saying, is the relationship to Islam and that they will have no way to avoid it, right? It's coming, I think, in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, it's already clear that it has to be integrated. The Kyrgyz society, it's also uh, clearly becoming one central element of the narrative. So it's coming slower to Kazakhstan for a lot of historical and demographic reasons, but it will be there on one way or another in, in the discussion in the forthcoming uh, um, uh, years. And yeah, as you were saying, I think the this rise of grassroots narratives is really absolutely fascinating to, to follow and to see this multiplication of niches who said that they have the right to speak, right? So the nation is not only defined by academic institution and, and state ideology, but by political opposition, Islamic groups, uh, just a, a blogger on social media, maybe also, uh, of course, the voice of the rural uh, a population is probably the big missing one as everywhere in, in the world. What will be interesting for Central Asia is the voice of migrants, right? All these kind of transnational communities for whom migration is just the reality, right? So living in Russia or living in other country, how that will change the way they are contributing to the nationhood and kind of deterritorializing a border, but also recreating other kind of links. So I think Islam migration and 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 uh, giving floor to the rural population are the tr tricky elements that will make this nationhood evolving quite rapidly in the forthcoming years or, or decades. And I will stop here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Malin. Um, 
I have a question in regards to Kazakhstan. So in your book, you uh, look at four Central Asian nations, but Kazakhstan really has the most emphasis. You, you really focus on it. Why is that? Is, does, does it have to do with the fact that Kazakhstan is actually in some ways a real special case based on its wealth, based on the developmental strategies of its president and the men who surround him? Or are there other factors that um, really make uh, Kazakhstan deserving of such uh, particular uh, attention? And, and will this continue in scholarship, in your view? Is that something that will you know, attract more scholars of Central Asia to Kazakhstan rather than um, to other, to other uh, republics? Yeah, thanks, Peter. It's, it's a question with multiple uh, uh, layers. Um, uh, I think one is, is that Kazakhstan genuinely is a really fascinating case because it had a quite complex national construction with so originally the, the Russian question, then this kind of Kazakhness, Kazakhstanes uh, uh, issue, then the kind of development models that was uh, uh, built. I think it's also depend of what we were able to do as scholars, right? For a long, for a decade, two decades, working in Kazakhstan or in Kyrgyzstan was really easier than working in, in Uzbekistan or in Tajikistan. So that also means that we could access more data, uh, uh, do more field work. So, I mean, there have been a lot of things produced in Kyrgyzstan. So I always thought I would bring more to the Kazakh case than to the Kyrgyz case. I think things are changing now because with the kind of partial reopening of Uzbekistan, I think there is a real wave of forthcoming research on, on Uzbekistan that will be emerging and kind of reconnecting uh, with the, the, the fact that Uzbekistan was also the key country studies in the 90s and then it kind of disappeared for two decades and it's kind of re-emerging. So I think it's a combination, but Kazakhstan has a lot of features that are exemplary and a lot of contradiction and complexity and diversity that are exemplary and that were worth to study just, just uh, in themselves. Thank you so much, Marlene. Congratulations again on this pioneering book. Thank you to our three discussions. I think it's symbolic that they come to us today from Great Britain, from Japan, from Australia. I mean, you couldn't ask for a greater geographical diversity, which is also, I think, symbolic of uh, where Central Asia is going, what great potential it actually has. Thank you all for attending this event and uh, all the best to you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.